It was Valentine's Day, February 14, 2018, when a lone gunman entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, opened fire, and killed 14 students and three staff members, and seriously injured 17 other people. It was a tragedy that deeply traumatized that community, and yet it was also all too familiar, just the latest in a long string of mass shootings in schools across the country. But there was something very different about Parkland, because out of that tragedy arose a small group of students, most of them regarding themselves as drama club misfits, who were bound and determined to change the national conversation about gun control. And to a remarkable extent, they were able to do that. And the story of how they were able to be so successful is told in a riveting new book called Parkland, Birth of a Movement. The author, Dave Cullen, is probably best known for his previous best-selling book, Columbine, which is widely regarded as the definitive account of that tragedy, the first high-profile mass shooting in a school in America. In the writing of Parkland, published by HarperCollins, Dave Cullen closely followed the students involved in this March for Our Lives movement, chronicling their efforts to create a number of different events, including that massive march in Washington, D.C., as well as extensive bus tours across the country, an effort to galvanize young activists across the country around this very same issue. He explores the ways in which they were tremendously successful. He also explores some of the mistakes they made. Uh, He also talks about the enormous cost which was part of this, the disruption of their lives, the disruption of friendships, and also the way in which they were the targets of vicious attacks and smears. Trauma is no stranger to Dave Cullen himself. Uh, He has been diagnosed with something known as VT, or vicarious traumatization. I asked him early in the interview to explain what vicarious traumatization is and how it has affected him uh, in his career, and in particular in the writing of this book. You know, I I wondered whether I should include that at all, because I kind of, you know, didn't want it to be about me. But my uh, my editor really, uh, excuse me, said that was a... important and uh i guess i guess it was because so many people have asked about it and vicarious traumatization is also uh called sometimes secondary ptsd uh where you didn't um experience or excuse me you didn't witness uh the the trauma directly but by spending so much time with the survivors or in all sorts of ways i mean er docs get it uh, ambulance, you know, EMT, psychiatrists, all sorts of people who deal with trauma in different ways, physical therapists, um, can sort of absorb the trauma. And um, I had no idea that existed or was um, something sort of professionally dangerous. I'm laughing because uh, I didn't under, I had no clue until um, I was seeing a presentation and realized he was describing me. And I was like, oh my God, that's why I'm a complete mess. Um, you know, it also struck, strikes people, um, you know, I just came back from Parkland uh, this weekend and talking to um, a lot of parents and people whose kids weren't, weren't in the building or weren't even at school that day, um, you know, neighbors and other people who sometimes feel guilty or, or, or you know, or I, you know, I shouldn't be suffering. I have no right to because, you know, I was, you know, X steps away from this or X steps removed. 
it doesn't matter. You, you know, trauma and, and grief are not something you choose. And that's about as silly as saying, well, I have no right to, you know, be throwing up because I have the flu. You know, your body has different ideas. And um, anyone who's connected in any way, um, even secondarily, can really suffer from this. And you've got to take it seriously and, and deal with the reality that, you know, your, your brain is, uh, is, has been traumatized. And... Um, and you got to do something about it. Mm. You really vowed that you would not be returning to this difficult topic of yeah. school shootings, uh, that writing about the story of Columbine took an enormous toll on you, and yet something drew you to the story of Parkland. Explain what in a sense, allowed you and or compelled you uh, to, in a sense, re-enter this, this difficult topic? Exactly. Well, you know, I have very firm rules with my shrink after the second time, seven years out after I was struck down in a really bad bout of depression. And, you know, she really kind of read me the riot act. Um, and, and I agreed. And so one of the things I could never go back directly into the scene of a crime. I, I covered these stories and wrote about them and, and, study them with FBI profilers and a lot of other brilliant people. Um, but I could never go back uh, directly after, um, much less do a book about something like this. And I decided to go back the first weekend for Vanity Fair just because this seemed different. And I didn't go back to cover another trauma or to write about um, or investigate a murderer it was about the response, and something seemed so different here and electrifying. And after 19 years on this horrible story of the school shooter era, for the very first time, I felt personally hope. And some kids had, had punched through the political stalemate and uh, were potentially offering a way out. And I thought, well, okay, well, this is worth making an exception. If you know, if this might be the answer to this, I you know, I need to see what's going down there, going on down there, and what these kids are all about. So I went down with an agreement to do five weeks and not a moment more for Vanity Fair through the the march. But then when I when I met, found with these kids was so extraordinary, and and really not really being covered in the press. And, and I don't mean that as a dig. I mean, that's, I guess, the difference between long-form journalism and, you know, short-form and daily, or, or even magazine profiles tended to, or magazine stories, longer-form, tended to be profiles of the kids, and it was nearly always David and Emma. So, you know, I got an inch deep into this movement, and <clears throat> spending so much time with the kids, I, I found there's so much more going on down here. And I thought the behind-the-scenes story of, why this was so successful and what was really making it so powerful um, and, and really changing America, I decided I had to tell that story and I am going to write a book about it. So, you know, I sort of, I, I kept that promise not to do another book about a school shooting because this is not about a school shooting. This is about kids responding um, to a school shooting and finding a way to make them stop. Mm. At least the first step in, in that, they have, you know, they haven't solved, they haven't done it yet, but and that's why it's called the birth of a movement. It's, you know, it's the first year, and it's, it's laying the groundwork, which hopefully will be um, the beginning of the end. Right. It is the story of some now incredibly famous young people who have been uh, the primary sort of face, the primary spokespeople uh, for this movement, and a small group of young people 
behind them, working uh, a little bit more behind the scenes. And then beyond that, of course, others who have taken a, a great interest in this. And one of the things I so appreciate about your book is that this is not just a series of profiles about uh, uh, David Hogg and Emmy Gonzalez and uh, Cameron Kasky and some of the other big names whose faces we know, whose names we know, but some of the others who are just as important a part of all of this, uh, but who work just out of the spotlight. And uh, I wonder if you could just talk about the care with which you have gone about this in terms of trying to tell this story uh, in in this sort of comprehensive fashion and what was necessary on your part in order to be able to do that. Sure, yeah, there are a lot of other people. And I, I would say kind of the star of the book and, and the hero of the book is, is Jackie Corrin, who is the junior class president, now she's senior class president, who's really the implementer who <laughs> who gets this stuff done and she's kind of she's just an amazing powerhouse i just i she kind of blows my mind and the group was par- really successful because there were about two dozen kids uh, nearly all creative and, and just really brilliantly creative most of them were from drama club um or and or um news production at the school and there were just two kids who were not and one of them was jackie and Cameron Kasky called her about two days in because I, he kind of knew he had all these really brilliant creative people who would come up with all these things. But, you know, you, actors and other creatives, they need a producer. So, what, you know, to actually <laughs> make a schedule, you know, make things happen. Um, and, and, and that's Jackie. And I sort of like picture her with a clipboard in her hand is kind of a way, you know, even though she didn't have a literal one, she sort of metaphorically did. And um, early on when, you know, she was describing, we were constantly talking about what she was doing, and I said, you're kind of the COO of this, aren't you? And um, she never heard that term. She didn't know what that was. Um, (laughs) And when I, you know, said, you know, describe chief operating officer, she still didn't know. Um, And then I sort of described the difference between a CEO and a COO, and she's like, oh, yeah, that is what I do. I mean, she had kind of invented that position, and um, she's the one who makes it happen. She's really unique. Um, And and she's also she's just got this amazing power and energy about her. She's this tiny little uh, girl with a really small voice, but she has a presence, and and the kids really respect her, and she makes it happen. You know, some of the other kids are uh, you know who I call the memes men, who are behind the scenes, really kind of brilliantly creative and um, making these. Things happen. You know, when you see them on, on Twitter, you see the memes. If you follow them on social media, all this kind of brilliant stuff. That's not just happening. They're not, not not all just sort of spontaneously, you know, holding up their phone and 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 creating these brilliant little, um, uh, you know, video vignettes. Like they're they're brainstorming those out. They're scripting them. And you know, I, I go through one where Emma's holding the boom, and different people are filming and acting. And like, there's so much happening behind the scenes. That's why they're. Uh, so brilliant. And, and, and for me, you know, a lot of people have asked, you know, how did you get this access? And um, when I was there the first few days and following this, this, this sort of first strike where they took on Tallahassee, where they, you know, six days out, they sent buses of 100 kids up to Tallahassee to meet with the state representatives and the governor. And, and I felt like, oh, God, I'm back in this packed journalism thing where there are literally hundreds of journalists chasing the same few kids and it's 
it's really hard to get access, and, and I feel like we're doing the same, we're all writing the same thing. And I, I, I told myself, it's going to be fine. You're going to stay, and all the parachute journalists are going to leave in a couple days or a week, and you're going to stay, and then you're going to get the story. And that's basically it. Um, when, you, when you stay and you keep showing up, any sources, but the, these kids really respect that. And, and it, it really also helps, by the way, in this online, this era of online journalism, because years ago, if I'd been writing for Vanity Fair and I took several months to do a story, that whole time they would be wondering um, if they could trust me, if I were doing it accurately, if I were capturing them well. And by doing you know, a series of online pieces for the Vanity Fair website um, you know, week by week, then when I worked, while I worked for months on the print version and then on the book, they saw what I was producing. They trusted me and continued to open up. Um, you know, so it's just it's, – and, and, and the other reason, by the way, is I uh, – as I say, is it, it always helps um, with sources, but it really helped with these kids to sort of follow my, my number one rule of reporting, which don't be a – uh, I don't know if I can say a word that starts with a D, um, but I'm sure you can. <laughs> okay, um, we got you. And you'll be surprised <laughs> how many people don't follow that rule. Um, and also, by the way, I, I don't know that I completely buy into the concept of children, at least beyond, like, you know, I have some nieces and nephews that are three years old. Of course, you know, you have to set boundaries and, like, a lot of boundaries. But teenagers, um, I never treated them like their kids, or it never occurred to me. I, I talked to them the same way I'm talking to you. I didn't try to dumb anything down or anything. They're just other people that often are much more articulate than adults I spend. And I just tra- treated them like other adults. And um, and I'm sure they appreciated that because, of course, one of the themes that comes up, for instance, in this event in Tallahassee where they're meeting with elected officials is they are given the message again and again, rather <laughs> either overtly or otherwise, that that we are just children. Uh, you are just mm-hmm. children. Uh, don't don't stick your nose into the business of adults, and I'm sure they must have deeply appreciated the fact that you you treated them like like adults. But speaking of adults, one of the things you talk about is that the parents of these students who were at the heart of this movement were very much along for the ride, and yet when it came to at least certain gatherings and certain parts of the process. Uh, they were very uh, much <laughs> excluded, I mean, consciously excluded from the proceedings. This is what you, you, you write at one point. The kids were on a wild ride and their parents were buckled in with them. At home, the kids were often uncommunicative. That left the parents feeling rudderless. Parents had been invited to an early meeting, and the kids said it took three times as long. Concerns about everything. I have an issue with this. I have an issue with that. The kids had heated discussions of their own, but they were on the same wavelength with their own silly process that moved along at their own pace. So the parents were banned. I find that so interesting, and 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 you are touching on one reason why it probably made sense for the parents not to be too directly involved with all of this, that their presence, uh, particularly in, in the moments that involved discussion, would probably have really complicated the process in a way that would have ultimately been counterproductive. It was, and, and, and 
sometimes I felt bad for the parents. I got to know David Hogg's parents really well. You know, I think Rebecca uh, Baldrick, his mom, is maybe the most present parent in the in the book. And I actually had more of her, and, and my editor said we need to take some of that out. The focus needs to stay on the kids. But um, the parents were fascinating, and sometimes I did feel bad that they – it was a rough ride for them. And, and and when kids when their kids were getting death threats or even when their kids were out on, up on stage or getting attacked on Twitter, I mean, I think every parent knows how hard it is. You want to protect your kids. And your, their kids were putting themselves out there, not to mention, you know, they were they were trauma victims in a sense and, the, and a lot of their parents were making insisting they go to the to therapy uh at least to start and at least to try it and so the parents were already terrified and then god our kids are taking this on so um but then watching them do amazing things and you know needing to give them wings and allow them but that was really tough um and so i i definitely felt for the felt for them but also early on um in an, in an early draft of the book aside from a couple of the parents um and I, I just sort of left them out because they weren't directly involved in most of it. And my editor said, you know, you need to fill in a few of, like, the, the part, part you um, read there was interesting. Um, you know, I didn't have that in the first draft. And she said, you know, I think every parent reading this is going to be wondering, like, well, where are they? And, like, are these kids, are these orphans or something? Like, where, where are their parents? And, you know, the fact that they're not present, you know, you just need to explain that. You're sort of taking it for granted. And I'm like, okay, you're right. And, like, so that's why I did the part of, like, why they weren't present. And they still were chaperoning them was a the big thing because a lot of these kids were 16 or 17 and literally couldn't um, – you know, couldn't even, you know, check into a hotel or book a plane ticket. And, and also the parents were like, okay, you can, you can do this yourselves. You can, you can make all the decisions, but we're not sending you out on the road with that on your own. You know, we're, you know, a parent is going to be there and, you know, for all those sorts of things, like you can decide everything, but we're going to be there while, you know, on the plane with you or at the hotel, making sure that you're okay. And so in that sense, the parents were very, they're very hands-on parents, but then they, they let the kids take this on themselves. That was a really hard thing to navigate and to sort of stay in the background and not stick their uh, noses in. Uh, that was great, but that was hard to – I mean, I think every parent out there listening is, you know, I don't have to say that was hard to do. I think you could all imagine, like, good God, I don't know if I could do that. Right, and, of course, on top of it is a concern that they had to have, which I know you shared to some extent that – the kids were taking on so much, uh, just emotionally and so on. I mean, this was uncharted territory for all of them, and it had to be disconcerting for the parents. But I want to talk about something else that is also kind of a part of this picture that I think will also be uh, uh, quite illuminating for people who read your book, and that is the fact that in addition to this core group of current students from the high school, there were also some really important recent graduates Mm-hmm. who were a very important part of this. You you uh, tell us about uh, one of the first important meetings that, that occurred, and the, 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 what you call the team was at that by that point pretty much assembled, nearly two dozen MSD students and five recent graduates who had been close to them in drama club. They were good friends from high school, a little older, a little wiser, and had some distance from the horror which could be a good thing. I think that's a, a really telling observation that I, I'm not sure would have occurred to the rest of us, that they were a part of it and yet not quite a part of it. And it was really interesting how 
the group felt like they had to also be really careful about how prominent these recent grads were would be featured and and they did not want their role to be misunderstood uh exactly. I, mean, I mean they they were they were navigating through all kinds of tricky waters and and this was just one thing that was tricky about it exactly you know if you, if you saw the daily show last late last summer um Emma Gonzalez was on uh with Matt Deitch uh, big red-haired guy, and and Matt is very much out in front now because he's and he's sort of their strategic planner. So uh, Matt is one of those recent graduates. He had graduated a year and a half earlier, and was very close to them. And early on, th- that Daily Show appearance was kind of his first sort of like big coming out publicly. Um, and at this point, so they're fine. So they're 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 out. But at the beginning, when the kids were getting accused of like, oh, they're not really doing this. Who are the puppet masters? And is the DNC doing behind this, or the Obama people, or, you know, I was getting all sorts of tweets while I was covering it from people saying, like, you know, where are their puppet masters, and why aren't you telling us the truth? So they were being attacked that it wasn't really kids. And they felt, you know, no sort of, like, uh, philosophical problem with having a couple, you know, a handful of friends who are slightly older who are also graduates from the school, you know, having them involved. That just made sense. But they realized that just muddies the water. We're trying to say this is really kids. Um, And then, you know, we bring up, like, with a slight asterisk. And by the way, Matt was the oldest of the group. He was 20. So, you know, they were all still, you know, teens and and, and roughly. But but, but why, you know, make that even that much harder and give people ammunition at the beginning? They were like, okay, so we're going to stay a little bit quiet about these people and not make an issue until – Till it's so clear to America that we're really doing this. Um, but, yeah, that was just a silly concern to have to do. Um, and that's why, you know, I didn't even realize until, um, you know, Jackie got me permission to go into their headquarters, which was totally secret. They weren't even letting the media know it existed because they were getting death threats. So this is a month out. And that's when I first met Matt. I, I, I walked in. You know, Jackie got permission from the group um, for me to come in. And, um, you know, I had to follow her car there. They wouldn't give the address or anything. And it was a little cloak, cloak and dagger, dagger, including, like, you know, you know, knock three times at the door and, you know, who was there. And it was like going to a speakeasy. And then I was inside, and, and I, that's when I first saw Matt. And I'm thinking, who's this guy? And people were kind of deferring to him like he was kind of in charge. And I saw a couple other faces I hadn't seen before, and I'm thinking, okay, who are these people? Um, and then they were very open with me about who they were. Um, and they were doing really interesting things, but that started like, okay, they're using, they're being smart about it. They're not making arbitrary, you know, cut off and saying like, okay, nobody who wasn't in the school at the time could be a part of this. Um, like, you know, these people, we need help for certain things. Um, another one, um, who I only mentioned barely in the book, but like Daniel Duff was freshman is sort of a, a major character in the book. And, and, uh, his older brother, Brendan, um, who had graduated also a year and a half ago and was at school in North Carolina and was studying mass communication and was really good with media stuff and really helped them behind the scenes, advising them of, you know, so they weren't making mistakes uh, publicly and, and, and understanding, you know, you guys are developing a, a public persona right now. Every time, David, that you're on TV and Emma, that you're out there, you're creating an image and you have to be aware of that. So Brendan both had some expertise and again, a little bit of distance to be, you know, brutally honest with them and say, David, here's what's going on. You know, as an observer, think about this. Do you really want to be, uh, you know, 
viewed that way and with all the kids, and that really helped them. Mm. We're speaking with Dave Cullen, and we're talking about his most recent book, and it is an extraordinary book called Parkland, Birth of a Movement. I was struck again and again by how uncommonly wise these young people were and the wise decisions that they made very early on as they first began meeting rather informally in Cameron Caskey's living room and and began uh, planning what at that point they had no idea was was going to become this this extraordinary movement but very early on they were smart they were rising above the 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 raw painful emotions of the moment and and you tell us that certain ground rules came came into play very very early on among them uh that this would be bipartisan this was not going to be aimed at uh, you know criticizing one party versus another that they needed to speak with one voice i mean openly disagree amongst themselves but once it came time to to speak to the world so to speak that it needed to be a uni- united voice and they even said something about how they did not want to peak too soon. They didn't want to do too much too quickly and kind of blow out all the energy and then have nothing to sustain them. I mean, I think there are a lot of adults walking around who would not have the presence of mind to think of all that and to have such wise guiding principles in place uh, so early on. Right. I'm glad you pointed that out because I was shocked by that too, especially that last point where, you know, Jackie said to me, God, I think it was about 10 days out. Um, and, um, yeah, and she said, yeah, we're still getting lots of, um, we're still getting all sorts of media offers and we're, we're turning them down now, a lot of them. And I was like, really? And yeah. And she said, well, you know, we, we don't want people being sick of us. And there are those kids constantly. And she said, we're shifting more to, um, print now into longer pieces, you know, think pieces that will be more reflective and analytical, and, you know, there's, there's more of an appetite for that. And it won't just be like, oh, us kids is, you know, on stage and in your face. And, and I was like, how are you, like, figuring this out? But, again, I think part of that was Brendan figuring that out and saying, and, um, you know, it's hard when you're in the spotlight to sort of, like, know what's going on in the spotlight. It helps to have somebody who's not even an adult or an advisor, somebody outside, where, oh, can we trust this person, who's part of your own group, but who's not in the spotlight with you, saying like, okay, let's cool a little bit, little bit. So, I mean, one of the things that really made this group work is that there were two dozen of them, and they took on different roles and kind of what they were really good at. Um, I was really kind of surprised about a month out, so a maybe 10 days before the march, I was really wanting to know kind of the logistics of how they were making this happen. And I did about an hour interview with David in his, um, in his kitchen, and I was asking him all sorts of logistical questions. And about the third or fourth one in a row uh, that he didn't know, had no idea, and he just said, you know, I don't do that kind of stuff. I view myself more like the press secretary and kind of a spokesperson for this. And I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. And I was a little worried. But then I interviewed Jackie either the next day or the day after, and she did have all the answers. And I told her, wow, this is good. You know, I was talking to David, and she just started laughing, and she said, you know, you were asking David that stuff? And she was like, David doesn't do that. Um, and, and then, I, you know, I talked to a couple other people, also Matt, about some of it. And um, he was like, 
I'm, you know, I'm doing the community outreach, reaching out to, you know, I'm traveling everywhere, talking to these different groups, and I'm, I'm figuring out the, the demands and researching. And like, I don't handle, you know, the buses and the porta potties. And it became very clear, like, oh, it's really kind of interesting because um, it was like a startup company where often there's, you know, turf battles and people trying to do everything, or it's about power or who's in charge of different things. And I didn't see any of that. I saw kids sort of like finding their niche knowing their strengths and weaknesses and like i'm good at this and i'm going to spend all my time on that and i'm not going to get in your face on you know the stuff that you're doing and so there was a lot of specialization and and yeah and and not not fighting over any kind of turf and i think that's what you know like 25 different sort of like brilliant different kids bringing all sorts of different talents um to this by a different perspective um the whole was so much bigger than the parts. And I think that's, that's um, what allowed them to do this. And then, you know, having constant meetings, I was shocked by how many meetings they were having. And this, this group text that would go like hundreds per hour of them, where they were constantly sort of like discussing what was going on. So as each person sort of specialized in the role, they were getting feedback from the other people that like, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am observing what's going on in your area. And as a slight outsider, I have some perspective, and they were listening to each other. And so it was, it was kind of an amazing way they, they went. And I think they were bright, be, so bright because they had 25 different bright minds. Right, exactly, and, and, and creative, and yet some types uh, in there like Jackie Cornyn who were also more of the implementer types, very organized, and, and it all worked together so well. And... Uh, and, and it was incredible, and it was a small enough group that it was incredibly cohesive, and yet a large enough group that it in, in, involved all of these different talents and gifts. A couple of things impressed you, uh, and, and a couple of things really surprised you about the way in which they worked together. One of them uh, has to do with, as they began having uh, a very powerful sort of online presence, and you write, a powerful platform requires two big elements, attract an audience and satisfy them with great content. And it's like they knew that. They didn't just launch a website and then forget about it, but they they would launch on these platforms and then follow up again and again and again. But what really surprised you was the way in which that content would be shaped and what the brainstorming sessions were like versus what happened in the editing room before things would be finalized and sent out. Tell our listeners what I'm describing there. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's actually the moment that I first got a sense maybe this would be a book. And um, the moment that happened was, I guess, uh, 29 days in, March 15th, I believe, around 4 o'clock is when I was there at the, the first time I was there at the Secret Headquarters. And Jackie gave me a quick tour um, and, you know, here's this room, here's the storage room, here's the bathroom, here's the writer's room. I'm thinking, the writer's room. Um, but, you know, one of the things I do as a reporter um, is when I hear something that tweaks my ear, I often stay quiet about it because I don't want to sort of put somebody off. When, and, um, you know, so I sort of continue listening. And then when Matt said it, uh, a bit later, um, we, you know, I said I wanted to interview and see what, you know, what's going on with him and what's he all about. And he said, Let, okay, we'll do it back in the writer's room. And I was like, okay, the writer's room? And he just gives me this look, and he says, what do you think, this stuff's writing itself? And I was like, oh. And then, you know, then we went through the process, and Dylan Byerlane was kind of their chief creative person at the time. They gave him that title later after he'd kind of earned it. Um, 
you know, walked me through um, how they went about this. And I was like, wow, this is like an SNL writer's room where they're brainstorming all sorts of ideas. And, and he said, you know, sometimes it won't even, we won't even realize it's an idea. We'll just throw out something as a joke. Um, and then people laugh and somebody else will go like, no, we could actually do that, but not quite that audacious or like that. What if we did, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he said sometimes the whole room will, will go on with something else and we'll think nothing of it, but the two people exchange a look and they know like, okay, we're going to do that. And then he gets together with them, got together with them afterwards. And, um, okay, we're going to brainstorm the script and come up with something, bring it back to the group. In fact, uh, one of the one of the things uh, that he brought up, which was their most successful meme last year, was when Dana Lesh and uh, did this hourglass meme, the night of the Oscars last year, um, sort of making fun of the whole Me Too movement and bringing that back in, you know, elitists and and a whole thing that got more than a million views, and the kids. You know, we're like, oh, my God, that's ridiculous, and we're going to respond to that. Um, and Emma actually said, like, no, that's too much. Um, they were, they already had a, a a policy of, like, not attacking individuals, and, and you know, that she felt like we don't want to attack Dana Lesh, you know, as an individual. We don't want to make fun of her. Um, and Dylan said, yeah, but uh, we got to do this. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. And so that night he went home and, and scripted up something and brought it back, and Emma's like, Oh, okay, that's good. Okay, so we're not we're not making fun of her, um, and and everybody liked it. And then you know they spent the next couple hours filming it. They got it online, editing. There was a whole insane process, and they had it up, and it got you know I think a million and a half hits or something like that um, in the first few days, and it was incredibly successful. But mm-hmm. all this was going on behind the scenes, and it's because they had a really creative team. You know, they did things like um, they didn't just have you know, a drama club, a lot of them were involved in also semi-productions of uh, theater productions outside of school, including Cameron Caskey. But then also, um, Matt also had, Matt Deitch had created, I think when he was, I guess, a senior, a parody of their school newspaper, even though he was also working at the school newspaper. And most of the people involved in the parody were also on it. And the school newspaper was called the... um, the Eagle Eye, so they call this parody the, the the Cold Beak. And it started out, I can't remember which platform, eventually it was on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, daily. Um, and they were trying things out, and, and it became very, very popular at the school. Um, and, you know, they were all anonymous because the, you know, the school administration was threatening if we ever find these people. Um, you know, so they were doing that, and, you know, Matt's brother, Ryan, uh, you know, said to one of his teachers, you know, I really would love to do improv. It was, you know, I wish we had an improv group here. And the teacher said, well, why don't you start one? And so when he was a sophomore, he did. And, you know, Cameron Caskey was a freshman then, and that's when he met them the first day. He tried out for it, was a part of it. They were doing all sorts of creative things constantly. And um, so content creation was second nature to them. So when this whole thing started, um, they already knew how to do it. Mm. You know, they had spent a year doing this satire thing, and every day understanding we can't make this boring, we can't phone it in, we have to be coming up with new ideas every, every few days or every few weeks to keep our audience. They kind of already had learned those lessons. Right. As a matter of fact, I think you crystallize it all so well when you say for such a playful group, they were very stern about the rules. So, in a sense, unlike a Saturday Night Live writer's room, which is 
I mean, especially in the old days, tended to be pretty much just nonstop mayhem, and they were probably lucky to get a show put together. There was actually a remarkable level of discipline in this group, and you had the combination of this wonderful creativity wed to a sense of discipline, of purpose, of integrity, a sense that this cause is so important and we need to do this right. And I, I am just uh, astonished at that perfect balance that you know seems to have been the, the, the key to their success. It reminds me of when, we, when you write about that rally in Fort Lauderdale just a few days later, and this is where uh, some of the first speeches were given that really revealed the, you know, some of the passion and talent of, of, of this group, that for many of these students who were speaking at this rally, none of them had ever even attended a rally, let alone spoken at one. And here, right out of the starting gate, they are incredibly gifted when it comes to uh, expressing uh, not only their own emotions and pain, but also a very clear-sighted vision of where they wanted this country to go. Yeah, you know, sometimes I, I wonder if that if that was a gift, that they hadn't already been burdened by the idea of how to do it and how other people had done it. They had done lots of speaking and lots of performing and lots of sort of like creating, so they had ideas of how to reach an audience, but they weren't boxed in of how an activist is supposed to act, what you're supposed to say at these events. So they spoke from their heart, and, um, and they knew how to reach an audience. You know, they, they were almost all in either drama or news production. So they understood communication and reaching an audience. Um, but they weren't – they didn't know politics, and they didn't know how that was done. So they created their own version. And I think most of us are kind of disgusted by – well, I think polls tell us, but and everyone we know tells us we're sort of disgusted by the state of politics and by politicians. I mean, I don't know about you. As soon as a political ad comes on, I either hit mute or turn it off. And I think most of us respond that way. Um, we're just really sick of uh, uh, just the whole state and the way politicians talk to us and the BS and the spin and, and none of it's believable. And these kids weren't trapped in any of that. They didn't even have to find like, you know, let's do it differently than that, or how do we find a way out of that? They were never there to begin with. You know, they had never even paid attention to that nonsense, and so they weren't influenced by it. They just understood how to talk to audiences and to each other and to reach people in an authentic way, and they just did that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what the power is. People responded, we're all looking for authenticity, for, for realness, and for people. And, you know, I said actually to Matt, I, I don't know if I use this quote in the book, um, about a month out, I was talking to Emma, and, you know, he was talking to me about why he thought she was so powerful. And I said, you know, and her authenticity. Um, and he said something like, yeah, why should that be surprising? You know, and I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, authenticity, but, you know, that's sort of a basic quality in a human being. We're, we're with our friends. If somebody's, you know, a total bullshit artist or just, you know, isn't an authentic person, I think most of us just will go on and won't pay any attention. Or, that, that's a basic thing that we expect in our friends or people in our daily life, but has become almost unheard of in politics. And, you know, this kids just brought us right back to being authentic and Maybe it took kids to do that who weren't, you know, bought into this whole, you know, 
media machinery. And right. They were it, newcomers it to all of this. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Among many things I found myself admiring them for was that uh, ultimately after the March for Our Lives occurs and they take a next step of, of organizing uh, a, a, an enormous bus tour across the country and bravely even went into sort of so-called red states uh, where their message would not be nearly so well received, but uh, also many stops where they met with local workers in this cause, including local young people at these various places, and they would insist to the media that they would only speak, that is, the Parkland students would only speak to the media if they were also including a local uh, activist in the conversation, which you tell us the media very much resented, but the Parkland students had this spirit of selflessness that, uh, that a lot of other people might not necessarily have. It, yes, it was. It was. It was kind of amazing, and um, it was selflessness, and also aware of how we operated. I, I remember the first time they did that was in Chicago. Um, the, the kickoff of, kickoff of the bus tour, the peace march, um, and a big event that brought in a lot of national media, including me, and um, and so they had their first uh, press availability the next day after the peace march, uh, Saturday, and. Um, and they didn't announce till they were starting it. The, those those ground rules and God, there was a lot of grumbling. And and at first too, I was a little taken aback. It's like shit um, because I wanted to talk to a lot of the Chicago kids, and I had already interviewed several of them in advance. I'd been there all week, and um, some of the Peace Warriors, Alex, um, I'm forgetting his I'm terrible with names. Uh, D'Angelo McDade and Alex. Uh, I can't remember Alex's last name, but um, sorry, it's okay. um, Alex King. I, 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 um, but so, uh, but I was thinking, like, oh God, you know, I wanted a chance to, this morning to talk to you know Cameron and David and Emma and some of the people I hadn't gotten a chance to in a little bit. Um, so there was a little bit of mental regrouping, um, and then it was also a little harder because um, the kids had all from from Chicago and Parkland had been meeting all morning. And then they were kind of like in a party mood. They have like music playing and they were dancing. And, um, and some of the kids weren't even wanting to deal with media then um, and weren't necessarily wanting to talk to us. And, you know, for a minute or two, I was sort of like, oh, we've got like half an hour and how to make use of it and how to talk to these, find some kids to talk to. And I realized like just I saw Matt and I pulled him over. I'm like, Matt, I really want to talk to, you know, some of your kids and some of the Chicago kids. Uh, find, me, find me a pair who, will, who want to talk. And he's like, okay, sure. Um, and then, like, a minute later, he came back with two who were very eager to talk, um, and they paired me up. And then they found me another set. I'm like, you know, you got to think about it for a minute. At first, you're like, it, it was very easy once I just sort of, like, cracked that. But at first, I was like, you know, how am I going to do this? Um, and then I was just really impressed. Like, God, you kids are, like, always one step ahead of us. <laughs> and, and by the way, I had planned to talk to some Chicago kids, but um, – I probably would not have spent nearly as much time with them. And then by being forced to, um, I, I was introduced to some of those kids, um, like Trayvon Bosley and Diego. I can't, uh, there's two Diegos in the book, but the Diego from Chicago, I can't remember his last name right now. Um, and several of the kids who I probably wouldn't have, and they had amazing stories. And I was like, wow, thank you for pushing me a little bit, you know, to do this. And, um, 
you know, and then I stayed in touch with them and kept going. It's like, okay, I needed a bit of a push because it was easier to talk to the, you know, the kids I already knew and that I was already writing about. Um, but, you know, God bless those kids that, like, um, they knew when they had the upper hand with the media and how to sort of force us to do the things to kind of do the right thing, and they did. Absolutely. I appreciate the fact that your book is honest about uh, one of the unhappier realities which is that there were certain students uh, uh, at the high school who resented all of the attention being given to this relatively small group, and some who just kind of resented it on that sort of level, and some who felt like that group genuinely needed to be more inclusive. And uh, and I appreciate how you spell uh, all of that out as well. In addition to, of course, uh, a much harsher reality, which was all of the death threats and insults and, and all that was flung at them, although you, you convey to us that these uh, students, what was most painful to them was the ways in which uh, their own peers uh, sometimes felt negatively about them. I appreciate your honesty about that. But I want to finish out by... Uh, asking you about what this ultimately, the effect has been on these young people uh, who, without planning to, have become, some of them at least, enormous celebrities. And they have, in your words, faced the the question or challenge that so many face, which is, uh, how do I leave my former life? How much of my real life do I abandon? How much do I give up? How much do I try to save? These are really hard questions that have nothing to do with gun control, uh, but these were questions that these young people had to confront. They were, and it, you know, in, in some ways, it's just like we're, we're we're familiar with you know any kind of child celebrities or child stars where that often goes very badly, right? And, and ends with you know rehab. You know, you can think of Drew Barrymore, people like that, who you know eventually recover, but. Um, you know, it can mess you up, you know, a lot going to your head very uh, young. And I think the biggest thing they really had going for them in that regard <clears throat> was each other, you know, keeping them honest and supported, but really keeping them honest. Um, because when you think of somebody like <clears throat> a child star, so let's go through Barrymore, you know, she's a star. She's Everybody's treating her that way. She's She's one of a kind, and she's alone in that bubble. And, uh, you know, of course, there are all sorts of advisors and family and so, but she's, you know, there's nobody else like her telling her, you know, Drew, <clears throat> cool it, like, get over yourself. Um, these kids all have, you know, 25 other kids in it with them who are the same way, <clears throat> who if anybody started to get a little too big for their britches or a little full of themselves could be like, come on. And, I, you know, I won't use any names here, but, you know, X, you're getting a little full of yourself, you know, so... They had each other policing themselves, which I think that's a really powerful thing that, you know, somebody like Justin Bieber or, you know, anyone we can, you know, think of like didn't have that and could get carried away with their own celebrity. Um, so these kids, I didn't really ever see that happening, you know, because especially, you know, they're on the bus with each other every day. They're on stage. They're doing this together. And if anybody started getting a little too letting it go to their heads, you know, there would be a lot of... <clears throat> quiet, you know, sort of like, well, you know, like the, the rest of the peer group would let them know. So that's a really powerful and really unusual thing uh, for this type of situation. And I think it kept everybody in check. But, um, uh, you know, Emma had a bit of a tough time when she got to um, uh, 
when she got to college um, in, I guess, in August, and was frustrated by the fact that, you know, she's new at college, everybody's just meeting each other, and like, you know, what are you majoring in, you know, what's your past, and like, everybody already knew who she was, and she was kind of a celebrity, and wanted to just sort of be a normal college student, um, and she couldn't completely, but then she had to find a way to just, you know, make authentic friends who wanted to be friends because they liked each other and, you know, not because of the celebrity. Um, so they have some things to work out. Um, and they're still, you know, David and Jackie are going to arrive at Harvard um, in the fall, and everyone will know who they are. So there's some, there's some tricky, you know, hurdles when you're 17, 18, 19 doing that. But, but they've had a really good year of sort of like navigating that and figuring that out with a peer group who will sort of keep them in check. So, um, so far, they seem to be doing that really well. Hmm. Well, that's just one very gratifying part of this story. And, and, uh, and of course, your book also explores some of the ways in which they have really helped to transform the conversation around this divisive issue. And uh, I appreciate the thoroughness with, with which you have explored all of this and more. The book again, Parkland, Birth of a Movement, published by Harper, and the author, Dave Cullen. Dave Cullen, congratulations. I absolutely loved your book, and I was so uh, grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and to talk with you about your great book. Thank you so much, and best wishes. Thanks. And by the way, in terms of thoroughness, I really appreciate how thoroughly you obviously read it. I'm really impressed. Uh, you really did You did your homework. Um, much more so than a lot of interviews I did. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. You're very welcome.